Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And sometimes when we're working on a podcast episode, uh, one or the other of us, I think this has happened to us both, will run across some other idea along the way. And that's actually how today's episode came to be. When I was working on the research for the Marianne Cotton episode, which, as you may recall, she poisoned a lot of people, including her children, with arsenic, I came across the mention of today's subject in Deborah Bloom's book, The Poisoner's Handbook, and I was completely intrigued, to say the least. I remember talking to my husband about it, and I scribbled it in a notebook for future reference because I knew I wanted to do an episode on it later, and eventually I transferred that to the list of episode subject ideas that I keep on my phone. But in truth, I didn't need to do any of that because I really have not stopped thinking about this story since it came to light in my universe. This is not a pleasant story, but it is definitely fascinating and it is frankly mind-boggling. It features both some horrific callousness, people treating other people in ways that is just stomach-churning, but it also features this very, very intriguing level of almost superhuman resilience. So, spoiler alert, it doesn't really end well, but it is a really, really fascinating tale and one worth hearing, in my opinion. So we're talking today about Mike Malloy, a.k.a. Mike the Durable, who was an alcoholic, homeless immigrant who became the focus of a murder plot in New York in the 1930s. And his nickname was incredibly apt. We know even less about Mike Malloy than any other relatively obscure person we talk about on the podcast Basically, here's what we know. Sometime between 1872 and 1874 in Ireland, he was born. And then at some point after that, he immigrated to the United States, magically in the interim of having become an adult. Or he could have become an adult after. We don't really know. We do know that he had a serious drinking problem. Those are the facts about Mike Malloy that we have. Yeah, nobody really knew much about him, unfortunately. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where we're used to that sort of nebulousness when we look back a little further in history. But even though he is a little closer to the modern era, we still just have precious little information about him. He didn't seem to have any family or friends. He had no steady job, although he had at one point worked as a fireman and an engineer. And he occasionally made a little money here and there by taking on odd jobs, although often he would do these uh, in trade where he would take alcohol in lieu of cash payment for things like sweeping up and taking out the trash. He did not appear to have any place that he called home. In July of 1932, three men sat in a speakeasy at 3804 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, and the speakeasy was called Marino's. And these folks were all having a drink together. It was at the very tail end of Prohibition. The three men were Tony Marino, who was the owner of the establishment. There was Undertaker Francis Frankie Pasqua and Daniel Kreisberg, who was a fruit vendor. Their conversation after a while took a little bit of a dark turn. Mike Malloy had been drinking in Marino's establishment for some time. He regularly showed up at opening and he started drinking immediately, only to pass out on the floor within a few hours. And he had a tab, but he rarely paid it. Business was not going well at all for Marino. He needed money. The speakeasy game was not exactly gangbusters at this point. His friends were similarly strapped for money. It was a difficult time for a lot of people. 
they were all waxing rhapsodic about this dream that a lot of people, if we're honest with ourselves, have had, which is that maybe someone would die and leave them lots of money. Yeah, keep in mind that this was, you know, during a point in U.S. history when some metropolitan cities had nearly a 50% unemployment rate. Like, a lot of people were really hurting. And so it was kind of natural to think about the many ways money could magically come into your life. And somewhere in this discussion about how they could be on easy street if only the right person would die, they started talking about Mike Malloy, who was at this point passed out nearby. And then they started earnestly talking about how they might benefit from his death. And naturally, if you kind of follow the logical steps, keeping in mind that these are people who do kind of underhanded dealings anyway, an insurance fraud scheme was hatched. This seemed like a perfect idea to the three men. Mike had nothing, and he was such a drunk that he seemed to already have one foot in the grave. Uh, It's almost like a plot in a serial killer story about someone who preys on homeless people because no one will notice that they are gone. They also thought they wouldn't have to do much except give him the means to literally drink himself to death. If they just gave him access to all of the alcohol, they thought he would do the hard work for them. And this kind of plan, though, as I mentioned, these are not necessarily people with the cleanest of records. Uh, this kind of plan was not new for Marino. And Pasqua, the undertaker who had pitched this idea, knew it. In 1931, Marino had formed a friendship with a woman named Mabel Carson. She was a homeless woman. And Marino had coerced her to take out a life insurance policy that named him as the beneficiary. Carson's policy was worth $2,000. And once the ink on that one was dry and it was finalized, so was Marino's plan. During that winter, he selected a really chilly night to get Mabel Carson as drunk as he could. He prepared a bed for her to sleep in by saturating the mattress and the bedclothes with ice water. And he left it under an open window. He undressed her, put her to bed, and waited for her to die. Her official cause of death was bronchial pneumonia, and the life insurance policy was paid out to Marino, and that was that. And so, among these three men, this was decided. Mike Malloy would be used in a similar fraud scheme. But in order for these three men, plus the bartender, Joseph Red Murphy, who ended up kind of looped into it, to all take part in this death and payout on Mike Malloy, it was going to require a little more work than that uh, initial fraud scheme that Marino had done. Specifically, it was going to need more paperwork because there were more people involved. So first they had to find ways that they could all be beneficiaries of life insurance policies on Malloy. And this wasn't so much that they each had to be named, but they had to have enough money coming in that it was worthwhile for them to all split up the funds. So they had to have multiple policies. And this part of the plan actually took five months to put together. And undertaker Frankie Pasqua had headed up that part of the plot. Eventually, they secured three policies. One was with Metropolitan Life Insurance Company in the amount of $800 in the fictitious name of Nicholas Mellory. And Pasqua had arranged to have witnesses who would identify Mike's body as this fictitious person. The other two were with Prudential Life Insurance Company, and each was in the amount of $494. The two policies from Prudential had double indemnity clauses. And if you don't know what that is, it basically means... If the person dies from accidental causes, the payout is doubled. 
So knowing that they had connections that could doctor a death certificate and identify the body as they wished, to the conspirators at this point, this seemed like a surefire way to uh, increase their income with that double indemnity clause. All told, if the plan worked, the men were looking at a payout of $2,776. And just as a quick aside on that, if you look through various accounts online, that number comes up different in a few cases, um, I ended up going with a newspaper from the time uh, of the actual legal events that happened later where they kind of total out the policies. So you may see a different number. That's the one that we went with. And so once that was all settled, once they had all of this insurance paperwork squared away, all that was left was to let Mike Malloy drink himself to death and collect on those three policies. Before we get into the great lengths that this so-called murder trust went to trying to kill Mike Malloy, let's pause and kind of catch our breath for a second with a word from one of our sponsors. Now back to our story. So to carry out this plan, Tony Marino simply told Mike Malloy that the speakeasy had a new policy, was a more relaxed, more open-ended bar tab. He claimed he was trying this in an effort to stay competitive with other speakeasies. So basically, that was just going to let Mike drink as much as he wanted without worrying about the money. They could all figure it out later. And Mike drank. Uh, Tony made sure that Mike's glass got refilled as quickly as it emptied. And it seemed surely no human could keep up the pace of alcohol consumption that Mike managed. He just kept downing glass after glass of whiskey until he finally thanked Tony for the lovely evening and left. He came back the next day ready to once again enjoy the luxury of an open bar tab with no stress about how he would pay it. He drank himself into oblivion one more time, but once again, he did not drink himself to death. He did the same thing on the third day. And on the fourth day, it got to the point where the conspirators were hoping that maybe he would get so drunk that he'd get a head injury because he would pass out and slump to the floor and hit himself on the way down. Or maybe he would choke on his own vomit because the alcohol alone was not doing enough to kill him. And at this point, there was a brief discussion about ending things quickly by simply shooting Mike, but that was dismissed in favor of poisoning him. It was decided that they would start serving Mike wood alcohol to try to kill him. And you may remember from our fairly recent episode on moonshine that wood alcohol was widely known to cause people to go blind at this point. It had been one of the problems of prohibition was people mixing this in. Tens of thousands of people had died from drinking alcohol that was tainted or impure. So they knew, one... That like it wasn't unusual for people to drink tainted alcohol during this time. And two, that wood alcohol was very toxic. So bartender Red Murphy bought some tins of wood alcohol from a paint shop. And after serving Mike Malloy a couple of shots of whiskey, he switched over to pouring from the wood alcohol tins. Mike drank them down with a smile and he never indicated that he noticed anything was amiss. And perhaps... More surprising, Mike never showed any physical signs of poisoning. He certainly was still alive, returning to the speakeasy day after day for more drinks, and he was being served more and more wood alcohol. And then one evening after several days of this, he abruptly fell to the floor. This murder trust thought they had finally managed it. Surely this was Mike finally dying. Pasqua felt for a pulse, though, and Mike was still alive. His breathing had slowed down considerably, though, so the men waited, thinking that they were just watching Mike Malloy's last moments on Earth. 
They thought they heard a death rattle, but in this case, it was a long, slow inhale. But what followed was a loud snore, then more snoring. Mike was asleep, not dead, and he woke up several hours later, ready for another round. And at this point, the conspirators started brainstorming other murder methods. Violence was once again brought to the table, but voted down in favor of, uh, let's try some more poisoning of a different type. So this time, they decided that they were going to soak oysters in denatured alcohol and then serve those to Mike, which they did. And for his part, Mike seemed to quite enjoy his meal, and he washed it down with a drink, which was more wood alcohol. The next horrifying step taken by a now very determined murder trust was once again based around food. This time, it was uh, worse than even the other awful things they had already tried. They made him a sandwich, but on this sandwich were rotten sardines mixed with pieces of metal and, according to some accounts, also glass. So the results of this are almost comedic, despite the fact that the entire business had gone beyond cruelty at this point to become this sort of twisted and grim group determination. Mike ate this sandwich that they served him. While the men, these men trying to kill him, waited and they watched But Mike loved it so much that he asked if they would make him another. But all this poison and foreign material, while it logically must have been having some kind of effect on his body, did not appear appear to be killing Mike in any sort of immediate way. And that was really infuriating to the men who were trying so hard to kill him. Additionally, the cost of their plot was really starting to add up. They were paying all these monthly insurance premiums. They were giving him loads of free alcohol. They were buying the ingredients to try various other ways to poison him. Plus, more conspirators had had to come on board in small ways throughout this plan, and they all needed other smaller payouts for their parts of the deal to keep their mouths shut. And it was the middle of winter at this point, so frustrated that previous attempts had not worked out, uh, Marino thought maybe the freezing approach might work. It had, remember, killed his previous victim. So after getting Mike blackout drunk once again, the men drove him to Cretona Park. They carried him through the snow to a park bench. They removed his shirt and they dumped water on him as he lay there unconscious. And then they basically just left him to die in the cold night air. He came back to the bar the next day. He had crawled back through the harsh winter weather approximately half a mile. Murphy had let him in, and he slept the rest of the night there. So because he had survived all of this horrible cruelty up to this point, Mike's resilience uh, was now prompting these killers to go ahead with a more violent approach. But instead of shooting the homeless man, they decided that they should run him over. So they brought in a cab driver named Harry Green into their conspiracy, and Green was willing to do this job for $150 worth of the insurance money. The men all rode with the unconscious Mike in the cab to a spot away from the speakeasy. Then as they were propping him up, meaning for Harry Green to make a final run at him, they panicked when they saw a flash of light. They thought somebody had caught them in the middle of their villainous efforts. After they determined that the light was merely somebody turning on a light in their home, they steeled themselves to try again. And this time the cab made contact. Mike's body hit the hood of the car and then fell to the ground as the car passed over him. And then Green backed up over Mike Malloy to ensure that he held up his end of the deal. And the men left the scene. 
The next day, bartender Murphy made calls to local hospitals and morgues, posing as a man trying to find a missing sibling to see if any John Doe's had been brought in. But no accident fatalities were known of at any of the places he phoned. These men were completely befuddled. Until five days later, when Mike walked back into the speakeasy. He had woken up in the hospital. He'd been found in the street and brought in by a couple of concerned cops. He did not have any recollection of what had really happened to him, although he did remember cold night air and bright lights. He was definitely injured, but he was very much alive. And good question is whether the hospital noticed anything wrong with him after all of this intense drinking and eating of things like metal. Yeah, he was treated for some bone fractures. Uh, and I read in one account, but I wasn't able to verify it, that he had fractured his skull. But apparently they did not uh, make any discoveries about, say, a bunch of metal in his gut. Uh, so finally... A cheap tenement room was rented by the men. And once again, the gang got Mike blackout drunk. And they carried him to this room, which was several blocks away from the speakeasy. And they ran a rubber tube from a gas light fixture into his mouth, which was secured in place with a towel that they tied around his face. That is where Mike finally died on February 21st, 1933. It had taken seven months from the point where the conspirators had first conceived of their plot to kill him, although most of those months were spent putting together the insurance paperwork. There were about two that were focused on actually trying to murder him. A shady doctor named Manzella, uh, which was somebody that Frankie Pasqua knew, filed the death certificate, and it listed lobar pneumonia, which is acute inflammation of the pulmonary lobe, as the cause of death. Mike Malloy was buried in a pauper's grave in Ferncliff Cemetery in Westchester County, all of which was arranged by Pasqua. On March 1st, Metropolitan Life Insurance Company issued a payout check in the amount of $800 on the policy that had been fraudulently taken out with them. That check was issued to Joseph Murphy. The bartender kept $60, and then he gave the rest to the undertaker, who then gave $150 to Marino and $115 each to Green and Kreisberg. This was the only payout that actually ever came of this whole horrible intrigue. Yeah, when Frankie Pasqua attempted to collect the other two policies that they had put together with Prudential, that insurance agent asked to see the body, and Pasqua told him that he could not because the deceased had already been buried. His inability to produce an actual body for the Prudential insurance agents raised some eyebrows. That was coupled with the fact that a whole lot of people were involved with this scheme at this point, and tongues started wagging about the unbelievable story. And that set the wheels in motion for the murder trusts and doing. Before we get to this investigation, let's pause and have a word from a sponsor. So, as we mentioned before the break, uh, there were definitely people talking about the long, drawn-out process of Mike's death. And it's possible that that prudential agent who wanted to see a body was a little suspicious of this situation as well. And eventually, someone put in a tip to District Attorney Samuel J. Foley that foul play was involved, and an investigation was open. In May 1933, on Foley's orders, Mike Malloy's body was exhumed and an autopsy was performed on it. This autopsy showed that he had been asphyxiated with gas. He did not die of pneumonia. And once the results of the autopsy were in, 
uh, Pasqua, Marino, Kreisberg, Murphy, and Green were all arrested and charged with murder. Dr. Manzella, the one who had written the false death certificate, was charged as an accessory after the fact. According to Foley's case against the murder trust, not only did the men commit this horrible crime, but in the period between when they ran Malloy over and the time when he reappeared, in a desperate bid to produce some deceased person so they could collect on their policies, they also tried to murder another homeless person, but they abandoned that effort when they were spotted by a witness. All of the accused men were found guilty when the jury reached their verdict in October of 1933. On June 8, 1934, Frankie Pasqua, Tony Marino, and Daniel Kreisberg were all put to death by electrocution at the Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York. According to an account of the electrocutions printed in the Reading Eagle, Pascal was frightened as he marched to the chair, Marino was smiling, and Kreisberg claimed he was all right when asked how he felt, but he was obviously trembling. The day that Pasqua, Marino, and Kreisberg were put to death, Joseph Red Murphy, the bartender at Marino's, was given a two-week stay of execution. His lawyers claimed that they had new evidence proving that Murphy's mental state was such that he could not be held accountable for his part in the murder plot. He had, according to their statement, been in a home for, quote, defectives prior to the events that led to Mike Malloy's murder. And he could not have comprehended what he was taking part in. But despite all of this work on the part of his legal team, Joseph Murphy was put to death the following month. Green, the taxi driver who ran Mike Malloy over, and Manzella, the doctor who falsified the death certificate, were both sent to prison for their parts in the crime. So that is the unfortunate and ghastly story. I know we're past Halloween. This is uh, a horrible story, Holly. I know. I have that sort of weird taste for the macabre. Yeah. But it's also just so, it, it really does kind of boggle your mind when you think about, for me, it's the two-pronged angle of like, just how incredibly horrifyingly callous can people be? Like, this is a human being, but to mm-hmm. them, they just treated it like a problem to be solved in whatever grisly way they could come up with. And two, just from a scientific standpoint, I wish we knew more about, like, why this one human seemed able to withstand an incredible amount of things that should have done him in. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, so it, it's fascinating in both of those lights for me. I actually do know person who who died of of alcoholism and it, it was definitely not like the long drawn out story of Mike Malloy it was a he was otherwise relatively young and healthy and had an alcohol problem and went way too far one night and died so like it also speaks to yeah. how critically dangerous alcoholism can be yeah, and it's one of those things, I mean, like I said, it's just, there. there's such callousness at play, and I think it's easy for people to write off somebody who has maybe been a little bit kicked around by life and is maybe not in the best state, but it it completely weirds me out and unsettles me that that people, and I know this is not exclusive to this case, that people that are in those situations are often written off as almost non-people at that point. Right. And so it's something that, I wanted to talk about for that reason as well. Do you possibly um, have some more cheery listener mail? My listener mail is so cheery because I knew this was a rough one. Uh, it, it's actually a series of listener mails. It's postcards, first of all. 
Um, I know I posted one of these on Instagram. I don't think we've actually talked about it on the show, though. But our listener, Jennifer, has been traveling around Europe, and she has been sending us the best postcards from her many travels. She is... uh has been traveling with her dad. She sent us one from Rome, which features the cats of Rome. Like I said, that one is on our Instagram. She sent us a beautiful one of the Bayou Tapestry. She sent us a beautiful picture from Paris uh, of the Eiffel Tower. And she sent us a lovely one of Le, Le Mont Saint-Michel, which is cold, but uh, worth a visit, according to her. Jennifer, this has been so delightful. I feel like we've been going on this trip with you, and it's super fun for us. Uh, I know I took, I snapped a picture of these other three that I mentioned, and I will put that on our Instagram as well. Uh, and also we have another one from our listener, Lane, and it is uh, a postcard of the Book of Kells. And I will actually read hers because she notes how much we like postcards. Uh, she says, thanks for your hard work on the podcast. I want to especially thank you for the posts on marginalized groups such as queer history. Lane shares some personal stuff that I'm not going to share because that's I didn't check with her first. Uh, but loves hearing about this and says, every time you two get a postcard, you sound so happy. So when my boyfriend and I visited Ireland and the UK, I had to get you one. The Book of Kells, I'm sure, needs no intro. The exhibit was excellent. And apart from the lack of an elaborate heist to take the book home forever, it was everything I could have asked for. Thanks again. I love it. It's a beautiful postcard. Thank you so much for thinking of us. I'm always so touched that people would be having these grand life adventures and they would pause for a moment and go, you know who I should share this with? (laughs) <laughs> that's um that's quite sobering and quite an honor to me. So yeah. thank you, thank you, thank well, you. I have a hard time remembering. I I like to send my parents postcards whenever I travel. I and I will get home and be like, "What?" So the fact yeah. that people re- remind or remember to send little old us. Yeah. I'm a selfish jerk. I don't even think to do it half the time. I'm busy having my adventure and being a selfish jerk. So Thank you for not being selfish jerks. You guys are awesome, and we love when we get mail from you. Uh, I always love it because our office manager, Tamika, who I adore, will often come over and she'll be holding things and like looking at them and being like, you guys get the best mail. And I'm like, I know. So thank you for making our office a cheerier place as well. If you would like to write to us, you can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Instagram, as I mentioned, at history. If you would like to go to our website and do a little bit of research sort of related to this episode, if you go to HowStuffWorks.com and just type in the word murder in the search bar, you will get so much content to keep you busy for hours, including uh, one about who the first murderer in the United States was. And you can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com, where we have an entire archive of all the shows we've ever worked on and all of the previous hosts have worked on. So it's all there for you, just free for the taking. And we also have show notes there for the ones that Tracy and I have worked on, as well as occasional other goodies. So do come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 